Chapter 6.2 of the 9-11 Commission Report This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corey Snow The 9-11 Commission Report Chapter 6.2 6.2. Post-Crisis Reflection. Agenda for 2000. After the Millennium Alert, elements of the U.S. government reviewed their performance. The CIA's leadership was told that while a number of plots had been disrupted, the Millennium might be only the kickoff for a period of extended attacks. Clark wrote Berger on January 11, 2000, that the CIA, the FBI, Justice and the NSC staff had come to two main conclusions. First, U.S. disruption efforts thus far had, quote, not put too much of a dent, end quote, in bin Laden's network. If the United States wanted to, quote, roll back, end quote, the threat, disruption would have to proceed at a, quote, markedly different tempo, end quote. Second, quote, sleeper cells, end quote, and a, quote, variety of terrorist groups, end quote, had turned up at home. As one of Clark's staff noted, only a, quote, chance discovery, end quote, by U.S. Customs had prevented a possible attack. Berger gave his approval for the NSC staff to commence a, quote, after-action review, end quote, anticipating new budget requests. He also asked DCI Tenet to review the CIA's counterterrorism strategy and come up with a plan for, quote, where we go from here, end quote. The NSC staff advised Berger that the United States had only been, quote, nibbling at the edges, end quote, of bin Laden's network, and that more terror attacks were a question not of, quote, if, end quote, but rather of, quote, when, end quote, end quote, where, end quote. The Principals Committee met on March 10, 2000, to review possible new moves. The Principals ended up agreeing that the government should take three major steps. First, more money should go to the CIA to accelerate its efforts to, quote, seriously attrit, end quote, al-Qaeda. Second, there should be a crackdown on foreign terrorist organizations in the United States. Third, immigration law enforcement should be strengthened, and the INS should tighten controls on the Canadian border, including stepping up U.S.-Canada cooperation. The principals endorsed the proposed programs. Some, like expanding the number of joint terrorism task forces, moved forward, and others, like creating a centralized translation unit for domestic intelligence intercepts in Arabic and other languages, did not. Pressing Pakistan While this process moved along, diplomacy continued its rounds. Direct pressure on the Taliban had proved unsuccessful. As one NSC staff note put it, quote, Under the Taliban, Afghanistan is not so much a state sponsor of terrorism as it is a state sponsored by terrorists, end quote. In early 2000, the United States began a high-level effort to persuade Pakistan to use its influence over the Taliban. In January 2000, Assistant Secretary of State Carl Enderfurth and the State Department's counterterrorism coordinator Michael Sheehan met with General Musharraf in Islamabad, dangling before him the possibility of a presidential visit in March as a reward for Pakistani cooperation. 
Such a visit was coveted by Musharraf, partly as a sign of his government's legitimacy. He told the two envoys that he would meet with Mullah Omar and press him on bin Laden. They left, however, reporting to Washington that Pakistan was unlikely, in fact, to do anything, quote, given what it sees as the benefits of Taliban control of Afghanistan, end quote. President Clinton was scheduled to travel to India. The State Department felt that he should not visit India without also visiting Pakistan. The Secret Service and the CIA, however, warned in the strongest terms that visiting Pakistan would risk the president's life. Counterterrorism officials also argued that Pakistan had not done enough to merit a presidential visit. But President Clinton insisted on including Pakistan in the itinerary for his trip to South Asia. His one-day stopover on March 25, 2000, was the first time a U.S. president had been there since 1969. At his meeting with Musharraf and others, President Clinton concentrated on tensions between Pakistan and India and the dangers of nuclear proliferation, but also discussed bin Laden. President Clinton told us that when he pulled Musharraf aside for a brief one-on-one -on -one meeting, he pleaded with the general for help regarding bin Laden. Quote, I offered him the moon when I went to see him in terms of better relations with the United States, if he'd help us get bin Laden and deal with another issue or two. End quote. The U.S. effort continued. Early in May, President Clinton urged Musharraf to carry through on his promise to visit Afghanistan and press Mullah Omar to expel bin Laden. At the end of the month, Under Secretary of State Thomas Pickering followed up with a trip to the region. In June, DCI Tenet traveled to Pakistan with the same general message. By September, the United States was becoming openly critical of Pakistan for supporting a Taliban military offensive aimed at completing the conquest of Afghanistan. In December, taking a step proposed by the State Department some months earlier, the United States led a campaign for new UN sanctions, which resulted in UN Secretary Council Resolution 1333, again calling for bin Laden's expulsion and forbidding any country to provide the Taliban with arms or military assistance. This, too, had little, if any, effect. The Taliban did not expel bin Laden. Pakistani arms continued to flow across the border. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright told us, quote, We did not have a strong hand to play with the Pakistanis. Because of the sanctions required by U.S. law, we had few carrots to offer. End quote. Congress had blocked most economic and military aid to Pakistan because of that country's nuclear arms program and Musharraf's coup. Sheehan was critical of Musharraf, telling us that the Pakistani leader, quote, blew a chance to remake Pakistan. End quote. Building New Capabilities, the CIA The After Action Review had treated the CIA as the lead agency for any offensive against Al-Qaeda and the principals at their March 10th meeting had endorsed strengthening the CIA's capability for that role. To the CTC, that meant proceeding with, quote, the plan, end quote, which it had put forward half a year earlier, hiring and training more case officers and building up the capabilities of foreign sec security services that provided intelligence via liaison. On occasion, as in Jordan in December 1999, these liaison services took direct action against al-Qaeda cells. In the CTC and higher up, the CIA's managers believed that they desperately needed funds just to continue their current counterterrorism effort, for they reckoned that the Millennium Alert had already used up all the center's funds for the current fiscal year, 
the Bin Laden unit had spent 140% of its allocation. Tenet told us he met with Berger to discuss funding for counterterrorism just two days after the principals' meeting. While Clark strongly favored giving the CIA more money for counterterrorism, he differed sharply with the CIA's managers about where it should come from. They insisted that the CIA had been shortchanged ever since the end of the Cold War. Their ability to perform any mission, counterterrorism included, they argued, depended on preserving what they had, restoring what they had lost since the beginning of the 1990s, and building from there, with across-the-board recruitment and training of new case officers and the reopening of closed stations. To finance the counterterrorism effort, Tenet had gone to congressional leaders after the 1998 embassy bombings and persuaded them to give the CIA a special supplemental appropriation. Now, in the aftermath of the Millennium Alert, Tenet wanted a boost in overall funds for the CIA and another supplemental appropriation specifically for counterterrorism. To Clark, this seemed evidence that the CIA's leadership did not give sufficient priority to the battle against bin Laden and al-Qaeda. He told us that James Pavitt, the head of the CIA's Directorate of Operations, quote, said if there's going to be money spent on going after bin Laden, it should be given to him. My view was that he had had a lot of money to do it and a long time to do it, and I didn't want to put more good money after bad, end quote. The CIA had a very different attitude. Pavitt told us that while the CIA's bin Laden unit did, quote, extraordinary and commendable work, end quote, his chief station in London was, quote, just as much a part of the al-Qaeda struggle as an officer sitting in the bin Laden unit, end quote. The dispute had large managerial implications, for Clark had found allies in the Office of Management and Budget. They had supplied him with the figures he used to argue that the CIA's spending on counterterrorism from its baseline budget had shown almost no increase. Berger met twice with Tenet in April to try to resolve the dispute. The Deputies Committee met later in the month to review fiscal year 2000 and 2001 budget priorities and offsets for the CIA and other agencies. In the end, Tenet obtained a modest supplemental appropriation which funded counterterrorism without requiring much reprogramming of baseline funds. But the CIA still believed that it remained underfunded for counterterrorism. Terrorist Financing The second major point on which the principals had agreed on March 10th was the need to crack down on terrorist organizations and curtail their fundraising. The embassy bombings of 1998 had focused attention on al-Qaeda's finances. One result had been the creation of an NSC-led interagency committee on terrorist financing. On its recommendation, the President had designated bin Laden and al-Qaeda as subject to sanctions under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. This gave the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control the ability to search for and freeze any bin Laden or al-Qaeda assets that reached the U.S. financial system. But since OFAC had little information to go on, few funds were frozen. In July 1999, the President applied the same designation to the Taliban for harboring bin Laden. Here, OFAC had more success. It blocked more than $34 million in Taliban assets held in U.S. banks another two hundred fifteen million dollars in gold and two million dollars in demand deposits all belonging to the afghan central bank and held by the federal reserve bank of new york were also frozen 
After October 1999, when the State Department formally designated Al-Qaeda a, quote, foreign terrorist organization, end quote, it became the duty of U.S. banks to block its transactions and seize its funds. Neither this designation nor U.N. sanctions had much additional practical effect. The sanctions were easily circumvented, and there were no multilateral mechanisms to ensure that other countries' financial systems were not used as conduits for terrorist funding. Attacking the funds of an institution, even the Taliban, was easier than finding and seizing the funds of a clandestine worldwide organization like Al-Qaeda. Although the CIA's bin Laden unit had originally been inspired by the idea of studying terrorist financial links, few personnel assigned to it had any experience in financial investigations. Any terrorist financing intelligence appeared to have been collected collaterally as a consequence of gathering other intelligence. This attitude may have stemmed in large part from the chief of this unit who did not believe that simply following the money from point A to point B revealed much about the terrorist plans and intentions. As a result, the CIA placed little emphasis on terrorist financing. Nevertheless, the CIA obtained a general understanding of how Al-Qaeda raised money. It knew relatively early, for example, about the loose affiliation of financial institutions, businesses, and wealthy individuals who supported extremist Islamic activities. Much of the early reporting on Al-Qaeda's financial situation and its structure came from Jamal Ahmed Al-Fadl, whom we have mentioned earlier in the report. After the 1998 embassy bombings, the U.S. government tried to develop a clearer picture of bin Laden's finances. A U.S. interagency group traveled to Saudi Arabia twice, in 1999 and 2000, to get information from the Saudis about their understanding of those finances. The group eventually concluded that the oft-repeated assertion that bin Laden was funding al-Qaeda from his personal fortune was in fact not true. The officials developed a new theory. Al-Qaeda was getting its money elsewhere, and the United States needed to focus on other sources of funding such as charities, wealthy donors, and financial facilitators. Ultimately, although the intelligence community devoted more resources to the issue and produced somewhat more intelligence, it remained difficult to distinguish Al-Qaeda's financial transactions among the vast sums moving in the international financial system. The CIA was not able to find or disrupt Al-Qaeda's money flows. The NSC staff thought that one possible solution to these weaknesses in the intelligence community was to create an all-source terrorist financing intelligence analysis center. Clark pushed for the funding of such a center at Treasury, but neither Treasury nor the CIA was willing to commit the resources. Within the United States, various FBI field offices gathered intelligence on organizations suspected of raising funds for Al-Qaeda or other terrorist groups. By 9-11, FBI agents understood that there were extremist organizations operating within the United States, supporting a global jihadist movement and with substantial connections to Al-Qaeda. The FBI operated a web of informants, conducted electronic surveillance, and had opened significant investigations in a number of field offices, including New York, Chicago, Detroit, San Diego, and Minneapolis. On a national level, however, the FBI never used the information to gain a systematic or strategic understanding of the nature and extent of Al-Qaeda fundraising. Treasury regulators, as well as U.S. financial institutions, were generally focused on finding and deterring or disrupting the vast flows of U.S. currency generated by drug trafficking and high-level international fraud.
Large-scale scandals, such as the use of the Bank of New York by Russian money launderers to move millions of dollars out of Russia, captured the attention of the Department of the Treasury and of Congress. Before 9-11, Treasury did not consider terrorist financing important enough to mention in its national strategy for money laundering. Border Security the third point on which the principals had agreed on March 10th was the need for attention to America's porous borders and the weak enforcement of immigration laws. Drawing on ideas from government officials, Clark's working group developed a menu of proposals to bolster border security. Some reworked or reiterated pre previous presidential directives. They included creating an interagency center to target illegal entry and human traffickers, imposing tighter controls on student visas, taking legal action to prevent terrorists from coming into the United States and to remove those already here, detaining them while awaiting removal proceedings, further increasing the number of immigration assets to FBI Joint Terrorism Task Forces to help investigate immigration charges against individuals suspected of terrorism, activating a special court to enable the use of classified evidence in immigration-related national security cases and both implementing new security measures for U.S. passports and working with the United Nations and foreign governments to raise global security standards for travel documents. Clark's working group compiled new proposals as well, such as undertaking a joint perimeter defense program with Canada to establish cooperative intelligence and law enforcement programs, leading to joint operations based on shared visa and immigration data and joint border patrols, staffing land crossings 24-7 and equipping them with video, cameras, physical barriers, and means to detect weapons of mass destruction, WMD, and addressing the problem of migrants, possibly including terrorists, who destroy their travel documents so they cannot be returned to their countries of origin. These proposals were praiseworthy in principle. In practice, however, they required action by weak, chronically underfunded executive agencies and powerful congressional committees, which were more responsive to well-organized interest groups than to executive branch interagency committees. The changes sought by the principles in March 2000 were only beginning to occur before 9-11. Afghan Eyes In early March 2000, when President Clinton received an update on U.S. covert action efforts against bin Laden, he wrote in the memo's margin that the United States could surely do better. Military officers in the Joint Staff told us that they shared this sense of frustration. Clark used the President's comment to push the CSG to brainstorm new ideas, including aid to the Northern Alliance. Back in December 1999, Northern Alliance leader Ahmed Shah Massoud had offered to stage a rocket attack against bin Laden's Darunta training complex. Officers at the CIA had worried that giving him a green light might cross the line into violation of the assassination ban. Hence, Massoud was told not to take any such action without explicit U.S. authorization. In the spring of 2000, after the CIA had sent out officers to explore possible closer relationships with both the Uzbeks and the Northern Alliance, discussions took place in Washington between U.S. officials and delegates sent by Massoud. The Americans agreed that Massoud should get some modest technical help so that he could work on U.S. priorities, collecting intelligence on and possibly acting against Al-Qaeda.
But Massoud wanted the United States both to become his ally in trying to overthrow the Taliban and to recognize that they were fighting common enemies. Clark and Kofer Black, the head of the counter-terrorist center, wanted to take this next step. Proposals to help the Northern Alliance had been debated in the U.S. government since 1999, and, as we mentioned in Chapter 4, the U.S. government as a whole had been very wary of endorsing them, largely because of the Northern Alliance's checkered history, its limited base of popular support in Afghanistan, and Pakistan's objections. CIA officials also began pressing proposals to use their ties with the Northern Alliance to get American agents on the ground in Afghanistan for an extended period, setting up their own base for covert intelligence collection and activity in the Panjshir Valley and lessening reliance on foreign proxies. Quote, There's no substitute for face-to-face, -face, end quote, one officer told us. But the CIA's institutional capacity for such direct action was weak, especially if it was not working jointly with the U.S. military. The idea was turned down as too risky. In the meantime, the CIA continued to work with its tribal assets in southern Afghanistan. In early August, the tribals reported an attempt to ambush bin Laden's convoy as he traveled on the road between Kabul and Kandahar City, their first such reported interdiction attempt in more than a year and a half but it was not a success. According to the tribal's own account, when they approached one of the vehicles, they quickly determined that women and children were inside and called off the ambush. Conveying this information to the NSC staff, the CIA noted that they had no independent corroboration for this incident, but that the tribals had acted within the terms of the CIA's authority in Afghanistan. In 2000, plans continued to be developed for potential military operations in Afghanistan. Navy vessels that could launch missiles into Afghanistan were still on call in the North Arabian Sea. In the summer, the military refined its list of strikes and special operations possibilities to a set of 13 options within the Operation Infinite Resolve plan. Yet planning efforts continued to be limited by the same operational and policy concerns encountered in 1998 and 1999. Although the intelligence community sometimes knew where bin Laden was, it had been unable to provide intelligence considered sufficiently reliable to launch a strike. Above all, the United States did not have American eyes on the target. As one military officer put it, we had our hand on the door, but we couldn't open the door and walk in. At some point during this period, President Clinton expressed his frustration with the lack of military options to take out bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda leadership, remarking to General Hugh Shelton, quote, You know, it would scare the shit out of Al-Qaeda if suddenly a bunch of black ninjas repelled out of helicopters into the middle of their camp, end quote. Although Shelton told the commission he did not remember the statement, President Clinton recalled this remark as, quote, One of the many things I said, end quote. The president added, however, that he realized nothing would be accomplished if he lashed out in anger. Secretary of Defense William Cohen thought that the president might have been making a hypothetical statement. Regardless, he said, the question remained how to get the, quote, ninjas, end quote, into and out of the theater of operations. As discussed in Chapter 4, plans of this kind were never carried out before 9-11. In late 1999 or early 2000, the Joint Staff's Director of Operations, Vice Admiral Scott Fry, directed his Chief Information Operations Officer, Brigadier General Scott Gratton, to develop innovative ways to get better intelligence on bin Laden's whereabouts.
Gratian and his team worked on a number of different ideas aimed at getting reliable American eyes on bin Laden in a way that would reduce the time lag between sighting and striking. One option was to use a small unmanned U.S. Air Force drone called the Predator, which could survey the territory below and send back video footage. Another option, eventually dismissed as impractical, was to place a powerful long-range telescope on a mountain within range of one of bin Laden's training camps. Both proposals were discussed with General Shelton, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and then briefed to Clark's office at the White House as the CSG was searching for new ideas. In the spring of 2000, Clark brought in the CIA's assistant director for collection, Charles Allen, to work together with Fry in a joint CIA-Pentagon effort that Clark dubbed, quote, Afghan Eyes, end quote. After much argument between the CIA and the Defense Department about who should pay for the program, the White House eventually imposed a cost-sharing agreement. The CIA agreed to pay for predator operations as a 60-day proof-of-concept trial run. The small group backed Afghan eyes at the end of June 2000. By mid-July, testing was completed and the equipment was ready, but legal issues were still being ironed out. By August 11th, the principals had agreed to deploy the Predator. The NSC staff considered how to use the information the drones would be relaying from Afghanistan. Clark's deputy, Roger Cressy, wrote to Berger that emergency CSG and principals committee meetings might be needed to act on video coming in from the Predator if it proved able to lock in bin Laden's location. In the memo's margin, Berger wrote that before considering action, quote, I will want more than verified location. We will need at least data on a pattern of movements to provide some assurance he will remain in place, end quote. President Clinton was kept up to date. On September 7th, the Predator flew for the first time over Afghanistan. When Clark saw a video taken during the trial flight, he described the imagery to Berger as, quote, truly astonishing, end quote, and he argued immediately for more flights seeking to find bin Laden and target him for cruise missile or air attack. Even if bin Laden were not found, Clark said, Predator missions might identify additional worthwhile targets, such as other Al-Qaeda leaders or stocks of chemical or biological weapons. Clark was not alone in his enthusiasm. He had backing from Kofer Black and Charles Allen at the CIA. Ten out of fifteen trial missions of the Predator over Afghanistan were rated successful. On the first flight, a Predator saw a security detail around a tall man in a white robe at bin Laden's Tarnak Farms compound outside Kandahar. After a second sighting of the, quote, man in white, end quote, at the compound on September 28th, intelligence community analysts determined that he was probably bin Laden. During at least one trial mission, the Taliban spotted the Predator and scrambled MiG fighters to try, without success, to intercept it. Berger worried that a Predator might be shot down and warned Clark that a shoot-down would be a, quote, bonanza, end quote, for bin Laden and the Taliban. Still, Clark was optimistic about Predator, as well as progress with disruptions of Al-Qaeda cells elsewhere. Berger was more cautious, praising the NSC staff's performance, but observing that this was no time for complacency. Quote, Unfortunately, end quote, he wrote, quote, The light at the end of the tunnel is another tunnel. End quote. End of chapter 6.2 Recording by Corey Snow, Olympia, Washington. HTTP 
colon slash slash www.cyclameth.com.